Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Robert Sutton on the podcast. Sutton is Professor of Management Science and Engineering and Professor of Organizational Behavior by courtesy at Stanford. He co-founded the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, STVP, and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, which everyone calls the D-School. Sutton received his PhD in organizational psychology from the University of Michigan and has served on the Stanford faculty since 1983. He's a senior scientist at Gallup and academic director of two executive education programs, Customer-Focused Innovation and the Stanford Innovation and Entrepreneurship Certificate. He has served as professor at the Haas Business School, a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, a fellow at IDEO, an advisor to McKinsey & Company, and faculty at the World Economic Forum at Davos. Wow. Robert Sutton, so great to chat with you today. It's great. I'm just, it's just because I'm so old. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> there are a lot of old people who don't uh, do one uh, 50th of that. <laughs> but, oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's really well, obviously impressive, but interesting to, to see you dive into so many different elements. And I'm curious, um, and we'll talk about, well, I, let me, I'll start off by asking you, do you see a main thread that, that weaves through a lot, most of this work? Well, well I, I don't know. Looking for consistency is always a bit of bullshit, but, <laughs> but, um, but still I, I'm an organizational psychologist, which I think is the most important thing about me. I, I was a psychology major for 11 years. I like you, that's all. That, and then I became an engineering professor, which is still completely bewildering after 37 years. <laughs> but, but if, if I would say the, the thing that, that really goes back to my education from my mentor, Robert Kahn, 
that 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 what I think about is the interplay between the individual and the organization. That's what I'm always thinking about is there's sort of this individual has these uh, psychological tools and limits and biases and so on and abilities to, of course, you're very much into abilities. But then there's the constraints of the social system, which both constrains them. And there's also a human um, construction, too. So always the interplay between the organization and the person. That's always kind of how I think. I can't help it. That's great that you're thinking along those lines. I don't think uh, every organization thinks along those lines, right? I mean, a lot of organizations will completely ignore the basic needs of the people working there in, in thinking that, well, if we just tell them what the mission is, they'll, they'll go for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. If, you, if we just tell people, they'll do it, right? Even though, even though the smart ones realize, gee, that might be stupid to do what I'm told, huh? <laughs> or self-destructive or give me a reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you familiar with uh, McGregor's distinction between theory X and theory Y? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> famous yeah. yeah people are evil people are good and in the and you design a completely different organization yeah mcgregor was like one of those people i was raised with early theory a legend, theory y. A legend right and so my, many people are not aware of abraham maslow came around and he he posited a theory z <laughs> did you know about his theory z no tell me what <laughs> yeah. theory z is so whenever i talk to organizational psychologists they, they haven't heard of that and um so i feel so excited that i get a chance to like i'm excited tell, too tell people that. so maslow um read the writings of mcgregor and of course mcgregor cited maslow a lot they were both uh-huh. in the same generation right but maslow's like i don't think he went f- i don't think mcgregor went far enough so theory x so theory through y is you know, the, the, the essentially the self-actualized person, the person who's right. doing good work. But Maslow said, I think that, that we need like room for the transcenders. And that's what he, he, he called theories. He, the, those who were motivated by higher values outside of themselves, as well as these peak experiences in life. And yeah, and he wrote a paper on that and many people don't know about. So, yeah. That's kind of, kind of sounds like, uh, you know, it's another, uh, probably the most, famous living organizational psychologist now um, our friend adam grant <laughs> i mean at adam that's what being a giver is about it's not just about taking care of yourself and me 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 it's being a giver so yeah. a little bit of that there yeah i remember I, I i actually talked to adam when i was working on my book and told him about theory z and he was super interested in it <laughs> so yeah well should we dive into this really interesting article of yours 15 things i believe sure and because there's a lot of ground to cover there <laughs> And there's so much to think about and, and you, you'll have like one sentence and then I'll be like, whoa, I'm going to spend my whole day thinking about that one <laughs> sentence. So first of all, tell me how you came about this list of 12 things. You you said it was an ending ritual. It, it came out of an ending yeah, ritual. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I, I've been teaching, you know, the first time I ever taught introduction to organizational behavior, I now realize was in 1980. At this, at the at the University of Michigan School of Business, so I've been teaching this class a long time, wow. and and, uh, and I got paid three hundred twenty five dollars a month to do it the first time I did it too, and um and, and so anyways so uh so I've been was that good money this, was that good money for a uh, academic in nineteen well it was it was you know it was enough to live in Ann Arbor yeah. in, in the in the in the um, early eighties was it sort of like the last day I never quite know what to say. You know, it's yeah. like the final, like, and, and people, and I used to say, ah, people don't need closure, but I think we actually all do need closure. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I started doing was I came up with, uh, there was uh, 12 things I believe, 10 things I believe about leadership that were sort of just a, a way so we can have some closure. And, and typically what I do and still do, I, and I, I, I futz with it, 
Uh, sometimes I do 10, sometimes I do 15. They're always sort of changing in and out. But I try to bring in some concepts from the course, some new concepts I haven't thought about before. And then, uh, as we'll probably get to, I kind of end by saying, well, you know, we've been talking about work all week. And Stanford is one of the most work focused place I've ever been in my life. Capitalism, capitalism, money, me, 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 career, career, career. That's kind of Stanford is, uh, you know, work is kind of overrated. So we kind of end on that. And so, yeah, it was just a little ritual and, and, and people seem to appreciate it. So I kept doing it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the, the work is overrated one. We didn't even we didn't get there yet. But that's one of your things on the list. I love that. Uh, so, OK, let's start with number one. Sometimes the best management is no management at all. Uh, first, do no harm. Why is that? So there, there is um, this tendency, you know, and some people are more prone to it than others who are leaders to get in people's face and to push them into micromanage them. Mm. And there are situations where you do need to give guidance. You do need to correct people in your lead. But in fact, there's two bits of evidence that show that it's, it's a bad, there are bad times to get in people's faces. The first one, my uh, co-author and friend, Jeff Pfeffer, has done a bunch of lab studies with Cialdini, actually, the famous influence guy, that show that uh, the harder managers work on uh, micromanaging, the more input they give, the more advice they give, the better they think the work their subordinates do, independently of the quality of the work of their subordinates, because it's just this effort justification thing, okay? Mm. And then... And then another twist is at least my reading of research on creativity, which you've done all sorts of wonderful stuff on creativity, is that the more guidance you give people, the more closely you evaluate them, because they're afraid to screw up in front of the boss, the more likely they're, they're to use tried and true solutions. So I sort of think of, 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 if you will, management a little bit like surgery or medicine, which is first do no harm. So that's so that's sort of one that I, I like to start Wait, with. Wait, that you blew my mind. Okay, so there are programs, there, there are, you know, courses, introduction to organizational management. So what would you, here's just a thought experiment. What would you relabel that course? Oh, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's sort of like a management, uh, it, it's something like, 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 like when to get in their face and when to get out of the way. Because that, in fact, Frank Flynn, another kind of organizational psychologist at Stanford, he he's done all, all this this research with actually Dan Ames, who's a, who's a psychologist at um, NYU, as I recall, um, that that um, that shows that the most important characteristic of a good leader is assertiveness. They know when to push people and they know when to back off. So and I'm not saying that managers should just let things go. I'm not saying they're useless or unimportant, but but uh, the bias is for them to get in people's face too much and they got to be careful. Good. I like that. Same same rules seem to apply for sports coaches too. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I really love that. Okay, number two. The best leaders have the attitude of wisdom, the confidence to act on their convictions, and then humility to keep searching for and acting on evidence that they are wrong. Well, this is just basically stolen from a bazillion philosophers. And then <laughs> and, and, and you're a psychologist, and the psychologist got in the wisdom business, and there's all these <laughs> definitions, psychologists. But the one that I sort of like the like the most yeah. um, is is this notion, which futurists use too, is 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 that uh, is that you have the confidence to act, yeah, and the humility to think that you might be wrong. So so in the futurist business, I was on the board of the Institute of the Future for a year, oh, yeah. a few years. They have this notion. I love uh, them. Oh, yeah. they're crazy. They're they're such a. They're, they're, I can't believe they're a nonprofit consulting firm. They're so flaky. I love them. I love um, them. 
and 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 the idea that that uh, that the best way to approach the future is to have strong opinions because then people know where you stand and you can you know your ideas are but weakly held so you're kind of always looking for evidence that that you might be wrong and for leadership since we're talking about leadership if you have a wishy-washy boss nobody wants to follow them yeah and and, and even i have a colleague kathy eisenhardt who's been studying startups for 40 years um probably the most i think she's the most widely cited person in strategy mm-hmm. and some of her early research showed that the that the best way to run a startup was essentially whatever you were doing, whatever your strategy to do it 100%, tell everybody it was the way to do it until the moment you thought it was wrong, and then pivot to the new direction and say, now we're all going this way. And then, and, and that's kind of consistent with this idea of having strong opinions weekly held, because you kind of know where you're going, but you're always looking for signs you might be wrong. Let's go to number three, because this one, you had me thinking a lot about this one. Indifference is as important as passion. Blowing my mind on that one. (laughs) Well, well, you know, I used to think this was sort of an original idea, but uh, didn't somebody write a book called "Excuses with the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck"? It's sort of the same thing. Oh yeah, he was on my podcast. Yeah, Mark Manson. He stole my idea, and I probably stole (laughs) from somebody else. So, so, uh, but the fact is, I I think that if you care about everything and try to please everybody, well, two things that happens: you try to please everybody, you try to please no one. And the, and the second thing is, is if you give your all to absolutely everything, you end up burning out and doing nothing well. And, 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 I, I, and by the way, I thought about um, replacing that which is, with something like everything worth doing is not worth doing well. In fact, some things are worth doing badly that you have to do. I'll, I'll give you an example in my own life. At Stanford, every year they give us this really long form to fill out for our annual performance evaluation system. And it's really long, and apparently there's a really complicated um, algorithm to determine the raises of faculty. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I even had to fill it out this year, and we're having no raises because we're having a freeze. And the thing that I figured out is there's no relationship between how much effort I put in that form and um, the size of the raise I get. I just have to turn it in, and then I get whatever the standard raise is. And, And the only thing that determines the size of my raise is whether I get an external job offer. Otherwise, I get like 2%. So... So, so why would I put a lot of effort into something where all I have to do is turn in the form no matter how crappy it looks? Yeah. What's the Maslow quote? What's not worth doing is not worth doing well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he said the opposite? Yeah. He said, well, he said what's not worth doing is not worth doing well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What, what do you make of um, – because we, we live in this moment where uh, a lot of people are saying silence is, is bad, you know, an indication that you're, you're part of the problem. If you're if you're being if you're indifferent to a, someone's cause, well, well, that's that's different. So I, I I think that uh, silence. There, there's sometimes when you need to be silent to listen, but silence because of fear is really a bad sign. And, and sometimes silence because of fear, of course, is rational, because there's some situations when you're powerless when you speak out, um, you're going to get crushed or hurt or killed. I mean, we 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 know this, um, but. But uh, but to me, the notion in general that silence is not golden, I think on average is true, especially when you have silence by people who have less power, because that's almost always a bad sign. That That's one of the main things I look for when I go into organizations and like just go to a meeting is, is there's sort of the boss and everybody else in the room. If everybody's afraid to speak and the only thing they do is kiss up to the boss and agree with the boss, we know that things are bad. Things are bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah, uh, that that can apply to lots of uh, situations. 
uh, you know, I'm a real big fan of my friend Susan Cain's work. And, ah. um, and what I really like about her work is because I'm more of a, I like to think more before I talk. And, but yeah. I noticed that, I mean, there's so many people, especially on social media who just like to talk. They, they like to talk. Like that's what they enjoy doing <laughs> is talking right. uh, before thinking it through. And how can we give more opportunities and encouragement to those who aren't the fast you know, the fast talkers, but even just the fast thinkers. Yeah. I, I like, well, of course, you know, Jeff Effer and I, I can't remember what's on the list of 15 we're even looking at today, but <laughs> but, but but Jeff Effer and I wrote about the smart talk trap in, in American society and organizations. You often get reward for saying smart things and not doing them. But to me, one of the things leaders can do, and I had a, a good department chair who named Peter Glynn who did this, is what they do is 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 that, they stifle the big mouth people like me. I talk too much. And what they do is they call them the introverts. They call them the people less power. And I, I can just, in my mind's eye, I can I have a picture of Peter Glynn going around the table with a 25 or so tenure and tenured track faculty in my department. Uh, the big mouths, the former chairs are all trying to talk like me. The, the, okay. I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking of you, by the way. No, I wasn't no, 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 I'm really guilty. I got I to gotta own my weaknesses. You're fine. And, 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 and then there's people, I think of my colleague, Hao Lee, who's really smart but doesn't say very much. Yeah. Call on Hao. Call on the new assistant professor, and the new assistant professor doesn't want to say anything. And then Peter kind of pulls him backstage and says, we want to hear from you. You're our future. So, so that, to me, that's, that's good leadership. It, it, is that you do reverse status differences, you shut down the people who talk too much. So, so to me, that that was really impressive about having Peter as a chair. Um, okay, so let's go uh, number four. The best leaders know what it feels like to work for them. Tell me about that one. Ooh, well, <laughs> so it's so, so it's a lot easier to manage other people's work. First of all, when you understand how they work, how it happens, and then the other thing, and this is sort of the, and I just I just saw um, uh, saw something about this with Fauci, who, the very controversial, you know, Fauci, the, yeah. our, our leading epidemiologist. Everyone that, knows Fauci. <laughs> that, 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 that during I think it was the last SARS crisis. Yeah. That 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 um, he put on a mask and got in the room with the people infected because he wouldn't ask people to do something he wouldn't do himself. That's wow. That's 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 what, a, what a great dude. Leader. What a dude. What a dude, man. <laughs> yeah. But 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 the other part, which is, and this is an empathy thing. Yeah. Um. And 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 you, this comes in your work a lot. This is the kind of kind of intelligences that you talk about. This ability to understand how you're coming across emotionally yeah. and how you're making other people feel. I mean, in some ways, the, the book I wrote, Good Boss, Bad Boss, in some ways, that's the theme of the whole thing, yeah. is, is good leaders understand when they're making people upset, when they're making people happy, when they're being listened to, when they're being shut out. And, and the part that I always yeah. make is this isn't just because they want to be nice. The most successful leaders also know how to use that so they can manipulate people to their own ends. So so understanding how you're making other people feel to me is one of the hallmarks of, of a great leader. Yeah, they, you, you all said they also resist the temptation to believe and reward those who butter them up with flattering bullshit and, and make it safe for followers to tell them uncomfortable truths. Now, that one seems really, really important uh, in the workplace because, uh, again, like that seems to dovetail with what you're saying about, you know, something's wrong when you go to a workplace and everyone's just kissing up to the, yep. the boss, right? Well, that's straight out of uh, 
I don't know that you know who interviewed her, but Amy Edmondson from Harvard oh, yeah, Business School. Oh, yeah, I love her. She's going to be on the I, podcast later. Yeah. Oh, she's fabulous. Yeah. We're old friends. So, so she's been studying psychological safety forever, and that's essentially her findings are when, when people, when the leaders aren't hearing and thinking about the uncomfortable truths constantly, uh, that all sorts of bad things happen. So uh, space shuttles explode, pa patients die, good employees leave, nothing good happens. I believe it. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen it. Yeah. Five. Um, this one uh, got me thinking. Fight as if you are right. Listen as if you are wrong. Now, why why the fight as if you are right part? Can you explain that to me a little bit? Well, well. So, so a lot of this comes from well, I, it comes from research on uh, on teams that are most effective in the kind of conflict they have, and teams that are most effective, especially doing non routine work, problem solving, creativity they argue over different points of view. You certainly can see this at Pixar. In fact, I've got some great video of arguments in a team led by Brad Bird, mm. where people will argue and fight in an atmosphere of mutual respect. So the reason that, that you want to have, when there's constructive conflict, people will argue as if they're right and push their point of view, because that's how you sort of develop the argument and maybe convince others. But then when other people push back, what they do is, is they actually... Um, that means they shut up and consider that they might be wrong. So this is a little bit of wisdom. And by the way, this is speaking of psychologists, this is uh, stolen from um, my, probably my favorite, one of my two or three favorite psychologists, Carl Weick, mm. one of the most imaginative people I've ever met in my life. And that's sort of a Weikian sort of thing. So it's stolen from him. Great. And so that seems to dovetail with your other one about having the confidence, but then the humility, you could be wrong. Uh, yes. you, well, I guess, I guess these are all positively correlated in a statistically significant level, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, let, well, let's see if a real scientist can show us that. I've gotten so applied <laughs> in my old age that I, I, I still read the well, uh, more rigorous stuff, but I'm, I'm more into applications. Well, I don't know if it's days. helpful for you at all, but I've been, yeah, I'm trying to tell you some of the overall patterns I'm seeing. Here. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So six, we want to, We don't want to make this an explicit. I guess we already made explicit with the bullshit word, so I'll just go for it. Fear the clusterfuck. Those debacles and disasters caused by a deadly brew of illusion, impatience, and incompetence. So this is fear the clusterfuck. So, so I actually have a really funny story. So this is, this is my, about this. So in the book that's from Scaling Up Excellent, it's called The Clusterfug, F-U-G. Okay. And I literally had an argument with my editor yeah. that he wanted to put on the cover of the book which I wrote with Huggy Rao, that I was the best-selling author of the no author of the no asshole rule, and I didn't want the word asshole on the cover of the book because I thought I shouldn't drag poor Huggy into the asshole thing. <laughs> That's funny. But then he wouldn't let us use the word fuck in the book in the same uh... like the same like twenty four hours, so it became clusterfuck. So so what that's from is is that uh, Huggy and I have like a, like a little sort of theory in our head, which I think is based on on some research, which is that when we look at situations where people make terrible decisions, the launch of the space shuttle, uh, we use the example of an IT system that was launched at Stanford. Uh, or maybe my favorite one would, would be uh, the Google Glass. It's, it's almost a perfect example. That's what I use to talk, the launch of Google Glass. Hmm. So, so when leaders essentially they they have the illusion of how great things are going and how smart they are then they're impatient to get it going and then their own incompetence turns other people incompetent so if, if you look at the story of google glass it's a great example of this what sergey brin did was they had a prototype of google glass um, in x now uh, google x and 
And the team showed it to him and he said, oh, that's great. Let's throw it in the marketplace. I said, no, 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 it's not ready. He said, yes, yes, it's ready. We're so smart. We can do it, blah, blah, blah. So then he drags it out of their hand. He's got the illusion, the impatience. His incompetence turns them incompetent. They can't figure out what to do. And it goes down in history as one of the worst products in, in, ever. And, oh, wow. and so, so that's a sort of recipe for human uh, for human disaster. And, you know, yeah. it's almost always people have too much too much power and too little humility. And uh, I don't know what kind of intelligence you would call it, who, who sort of screw that up. Machiavellian intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't even know whether Sergey is Machiavellian. He just mm. he just had too much success and too much money and, and figured he could do whatever he wanted. So, yeah, maybe th th there's no kind of intelligence there. That We're on the wrong <laughs> path. <laughs> there's something else. <laughs> it's not it's, a, it's, it's not an intelligence. Yeah. Well, it's a, maybe it's a stupidity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> um, but that definitely sounds like a clusterfug, regardless of whatever. Okay, seven. This one's interesting. Big teams suck. Is that okay, always well, true? Is that always true? Well, it's it's mostly you might be able to find some exceptions, but since since you're a real psychologist, I don't get to talk one very often. You remember <laughs> the famous Miller's paper seven yeah. plus or minus two course, that about yeah. that we can only it's one of the most famous papers in psychology that yes. that we can only hold up to nine bits of information <laughs> yes. in our head, and and that sort of seems to translate to teams. And if you look at old team research by um, one of my mentors and Amy Edmondson's too, J. Richard Hackman. He would sort of show you once you get over 10, things sort of fall apart. And, and we've got all sorts of studies in, in different situations where, especially when people do tight, interdependent work, um, once you get over six or seven, you're sort of in trouble usually. And, and so two things happen. It's, it's just a cognitive load problem that, 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 that essentially when you've got more people, moods and activities to keep track of, then uh, first of all, what happens is you spend more time coordinating and less time actually doing the work. That's what you'll see in study after study because you spend all this time coordinating them. And then, and then the other thing that happens is because you're not in tune with them and you can't keep track of it, you start having more disagreements and problems. So, so I mean, you're, you're like a good cognitive. Don't you have a PhD in cognitive psychology or yeah, something like that? Yeah, that's my background. That's right. Yeah, you should yeah. know this stuff. Um, you know this stuff a lot better than I do. But it's, it's, So the argument is sort of a cognitive load problem. Yeah. Can you can you give a specific example of how too big of a team led to a product that was a failure? Well, I don't know it's a product, but it's one of my it's actually a, a performance example. So uh, we had the America's Cup yacht race. Yeah, I, I love that you're a sailor, by the way. So what happened was uh, was that Larry Ellison, whose team ultimately won. Well, at least I used to be a good sailor. Now I can hardly sail at all. But 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 what happened was Larry Ellison was was funding this huge America's Cup effort, and they moved from five person boats to eleven person boats. Okay, so uh, Jimmy Spithill, who was the winning skipper, and one of my friends, Perry Claybine, got to know him. So what happened is they moved from the five person boat to the eleven person boat. Yeah, and they go out sailing in San Francisco Bay. They capsize the boat, and 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 this is a seventy five foot. Um, $15 million sailboat, by the way. It, it washes wow. out the Golden Gate Bridge. They break the mast. And essentially, they had no boat to sail. So we did some group dynamic stuff with them. So I'm talking to Jimmy Spithill, and he says, the problem is, is and they'll have microphones and all can talk. We went from a five-person um, team, so five voices, to 11 voices. And, and we're having problems. So what did they do? They took microphones off of five of the, the guys on the boat. So there only could be six voices. 
How'd they make that decision? <laughs> well, well, you'd have to, if you were on the bow, you'd have to say to the guy next to them, tell him blah, blah, blah. So there wouldn't be too much to coordinate. So, so I, I thought that was a really interesting solution. There's also another story in our book where the U.S. Marines in um, at the very beginning of World War II moved from five-person or four-person fire teams to 12-person fire teams and had terrible problems and the death rate went way up too. So there's there's other examples too. That's great. You had me at sailboat. But those are, those are great, great examples. <laughs> hey, so why is why was George Carlin right? Oh, George Carlin also got the George Carlin rule. So this is this comes from a book project Huggy Rao and I've been working on forever, and and we're sort of interested in the notion that very often in organizations they they suffer from addition sickness. Where more Addition? and more stuff get, oh, yeah. gets added, more and more rules, more and more things, and nothing ever gets subtracted. So one of the causes, and this is this is the uh, from a George Carlin skit of this addition sickness or sort of tragedy of the commons when it yeah. comes to rules and and procedures, is it's essentially that um, my stuff or my shit is stuff, your stuff is shit. Yeah. So what that means is that everything that I add is good. So everybody has like this incentive to add stuff since my, since my shit is stuff and your stuff is shit. And, and where you really see this, and, and there's some organizations I'm working with, I'm thinking of Apple right before Steve Jobs took over is a really good example. They had a huge number of products like that had something like that, 27 different Macs, for example. And what happened from a power standpoint is that um, they they were kind of organizations where people could in groups could have enough power to add a new a new Mac, but nobody had the power to subtract. So that's where you sort of end up with this tragedy of complexity that that actually confuses customers and costs the organization money and and causes a bunch of um, internal conflict in the organization. So what did Jobs do? He came in with a year. He got rid of all the products and he introduced four. So that was sort of like Jobs, sort of a subtle guy. Yeah, that was his uh, meditation uh, simplicity uh, vibe that he brought to that table. Yeah, yeah, subtraction. <laughs> Minimal minimalism. Yeah, minimalism saved Apple. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I love that. Okay, this one is interesting. Nine, because especially because I I've been really deeply entrenched in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, you wrote. Are you ready for it? hierarchy? Is good. Hierarchy is essential. And less isn't always better. Why don't you just elaborate a bit on that? Well, well. So, so first of all, I, this comes from an essay that I wrote where I, I made really clear that I hated hierarchy and bureaucracy and was raised <laughs> by my father to really hate it. And then I went to Berkeley and protested and like I just hate the in theory. But then I started learning about organizations, and essentially, it, 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 I, I, there, there's a, um, a a number of papers, including by my colleague Laura Tietens, another psychologist, um, that essentially shows that that um, you can't find human groups or even animal groups that don't have a pecking order. And then when you try to, uh, when you try to remove the pecking order, uh, they end up fighting like crazy until they get a pecking order. So. And, and 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 people might start talking about things like Zappos and adhocracy. Well, that's actually a hierarchy of circles, and they had a CEO impose it on them. Or they might say, what about open source software? If you look at like something like Mozilla, there's actually benevolent dictators who decide what ultimately goes in the code base, and there's a whole hierarchy of of people. And so so the the problem is that um, it, it seems to be impossible to organize human or animal groups 
with su- without some kind of um, pecking order. What about, um, what about where, like where, hippie communes? Oh, there's always status differences uh-huh. like that, and, and that that's what that's that's what um, uh, Lara's paper is. Uh, when you go into any situations, there's not supposed to be a pecking order. There's people get more talking time, people get more goodies. Uh-huh. Yeah, what about communism? How did that I, like like that like there's always like the people in the party have more status and goodies than everybody else. Now, I'm not saying that that we shouldn't reduce status differences as po- as much as possible, and we have an enormous amount of um, evidence that too many layers, mm. too many status differences do all sorts of damage. Yeah, and and so so I'm all for making organizations, if you will, as um, to de-emphasize status differences as much as possible. But 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 there almost always has to be somebody who has some decision authority. At certain times, for example, when you need to move fast, and and as my my uh, beloved late dissertation advisor used to say, the, the most reliable way to reduce international warfare in conflict is to have some entity with more power come in and sort of get them to stop. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, and 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 there are other ways to reduce the need um, to have authority and stuff. Um, but but the fact is, I don't know how to organize a social system of any kind without um, some status and power differences, as bad as they turn out to be. Yeah, and but it's not always necessarily bad, right? You can have certain arrangements that are of a hierarchy that that are good and positive, right? Yeah, yeah. If if if, if there's participation, if people well, one one is so. Um, so, so so I, so I, I, there's some other research on um, the best leaders flex hierarchy. So what what they'll do is when they so they officially when they don't have expertise, they're really good. This is sort of like knowing the people who work for you. They're really good at shutting up and and sort of calling on the person who has more expertise and flexing the hierarchy and make that person the highest status person in the room until we're done with this decision, because, you know, more than me. Um, and, and to me, that's what it's sort of that's what great um, leaders and people with power do is they know when to surrender power temporarily and go to even or even below power. And then they also have the power to stop the person. Well, I don't know who, who, who is the, the, uh, the expert in plastics, but knows nothing about manufacturing <laughs> to, uh, to shut up when the manufacturing conversation comes up. I love that. So that, that makes so much sense to having a flexible hierarchy, you know, where you, you're, you're willing to, to shift and contextually based on what's best for the best for the, uh, the larger whole. And, and, and there, there's there's some evidence, by the way, that that this is how the be- most effective startups operate. It makes so much is, sense. Is, yeah. So yeah, I, I love it. I love it. If I ever was a leader, that's what <laughs> I would want to do. That <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> number ten. Uh, I know you you kind of said you're done with the asshole stuff, but number ten brings you back to your roots in a way. I'm never done <laughs> with. That's not. That was like my fourth book, but I'll always be the asshole guy. I accept it. Well, it's all, it's like, it's like, you know, the Beatles, it's like, play your, play the song, you know, the strawberry <laughs> uh-huh. fields, you know, like, <laughs> okay. Um, number this track, the asshole track, number 10, if you are a winner and an asshole, you're still a loser in my book because you are harming so many other people and you're lost to build something, make money or dominate that competition. That one, I got to admit, Bob, that one sounded very personal to you. <laughs> yeah, it is personal. Well, so, yeah, and Elon Musk might be an example of this, by the way, if you want to oh, pick somebody who's immediately. But You think but, he's so, an asshole? So, uh there's nobody I know who worked with him who doesn't think he's an okay. asshole. I, I, I want to find somebody who knows him well who doesn't think he's an asshole. Okay. And, and, and by the way, Jobs, 
the, there's a lot of people with jobs who thinks he wasn't an asshole, especially later in life. So, so right, although he's younger, who knows? But, but to go back, if we go to the weight of the behavioral science literature, let's just go to the weight of the behavioral science mm-hmm. literature, that, that if you're somebody who, who somehow or another leaves people feeling demeaned, de-energized, exploited, you can sort of pick your flavor of assholeness, that, um, that, that it has negative effect on, effect on their well-being. It has negative effect actually on their performance. It has negative effect on their family life on their creativity, on their, like, it's really, really hard. If, if you start just doing a general Google search, and I did this for my, uh, what I hopefully is my last asshole book in 2017, (laughs) um, the asshole survival guide, but, but, but actually looking at the behavioral science literature and finding something good about treating people like dirt and leaving them feeling disrespected, you may succeed anyways. Well, the, the, I'll say the one good thing about it is that if you're in a zero sum game, it may help you get ahead by demeaning and humiliating people and, and making others feel like dirt. This might be why Michael Jordan, one of the right. reasons Michael Jordan was successful, is, is he just intimidated everybody so much. So in a zero-sum game, it might help you get ahead. But, but, but if you actually care about the fellow human beings around you and their mental health, their families, their physical health, and even their performance, uh, it's hard to find anything good. You know, assholes love saying assholes finish first. They love saying that, <laughs> you know, that phrase, the phrase assholes finish first, but it sounds like you're saying, you know, what finish, what game, what game are we finishing? You know? And you're like, I wouldn't even say that you're winning if, if you win based on that uh, motivation. Yeah. And it depends. And, and then, and then our friend, Adam Grant, we're talking about Adam Grant, who we love. So Adam's like, he's got a pretty strong evidence-based case that, 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 uh, that essentially people are takers, which would be one flavor of asshole, if you will, that, that, that takers will sometimes do better in the short term. They sometimes are able to support pe- to exploit people in sort of short term, zero sum games. But if it's a long-term game, they tend to do better and to do uh, good for other people along the way. So, so I, I can show situations where I'm consistently treating other people like dirt might help you get ahead, but they're pretty ugly situations. And to talk about exceptions, there are, it depends what you mean by an asshole, but there are times when losing your temper, treating other people like dirt may work in the short term and may not be a good idea. And, and one of the examples, and so one of my um, dear friends and favorite psychologist, Barry Staw had this paper that was around literally for decades and finally, thanks, thanks to another psychologist, Katie DeSalle, uh, got it published in Journal of Applied Psychology and, and what they showed to oversimplify as much as possible that um, basketball coaches, high school, college basketball coaches who have temper tantrums and get pissed off and yell at the players at halftime, that, that if they do it all the time, it doesn't work. And if they never do it, it doesn't work. But, but the best coaches who occasionally lose their temper and yell at their um, teams, that that seems to work because, um, and, and, the, and the explanation seems to be when, when somebody yells at you who almost never yells at you, you tend to say, oh, it's probably not them, it's probably me because they don't usually act like that. So you tend to make make an attribution that's yourself, not the situation. But if it's somebody who's an asshole who yells at you every time, you say, well, it's just an asshole doing asshole things. Isn't that how like abusers do it, though? They, they, they're they not assholes all the time. I feel like abusers in relationships are like every now and then. I don't know. Well, well so, so I, I do have in the in the no asshole world, I have a guide if you want to be a successful asshole. 
and, 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 and one of them is not to be all asshole all the time, to be yeah. somewhat strategic about it. And then a, a, second, a second key one is to have somebody to clean up after you, a toxic handler, as they're sometimes called. Wow. Our president's got a lot of those, by the way. I know. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to go there, but <laughs> I'll go. But no, he's, he's got lots of them. He's got a lot of, a lot of people on his staff that, that have those functions. Okay. 11, I love this one. I love it so much. I um, actually just tweeted it. I don't know if you saw uh, a couple minutes ago, I tweeted this about how Kurt Vonnegut was right. It is often more constructive to tell yourself I have enough than to keep asking how you can get more and more and more. I don't believe that people who die with the fast money, fancy stuff, power, prestige win the game of life. So tell a little bit about the, about the Kurt Vonnegut story. It's a very short story. Oh, uh, so, so what happened was, was, uh, very close to the, to before he died, Kurt Vonnegut published a poem in the New Yorker called Joe Heller. And, and essentially the punchline of the poem was Joe Heller and Kurt Vonnegut were at some billionaire's house and Kurt Vonnegut said something to him, like to Joe Heller, something like, uh, uh you know, um, he's made more money today than you had from all the sales of catch 22. And Joe Heller said, but I've got something that he can never have, which is the knowledge that I have enough. And so to me, and we're talking, and, and so when I saw this poem, the, as I actually wrote Kurt Vonnegut, a, a, like an old fashioned letter and asked for permission. You did? Yes, I, I can send you the postcard. It asked for permission he to responded? use the poem in my book. He responded with a personal postcard. It's somewhere on my blog, a personal postcard in which he said I had basically unlimited rights to use the poem for whatever I want. Wow. So that was... That was like one. I, I, I'll send you a copy of it later. That was one of my my great, most exciting moments. So so anyhow, so it comes from this 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 poem and, and, and empirical that people who never have enough, like they never have enough power, they never have a have, have a, a, enough sex, like they just all. And in fact, that's what the title of of kind of like the new book by Donald Trump's um, niece is about, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 sort of that's that's sort of the, the what's the title of that book? Oh, um, yeah, too much and never enough, or something like that. Too much and never enough. Just yeah. that striving. I've been, I, I never have enough status. I never have enough beautiful women. I, I mean, all that. I never have enough money. I just want to crush you more and more. Yeah, I really loved that uh, that story, that kind of event. I get story. It was a, it was the first time I came across it, and it was very exciting because I've been just thinking so much about that lately. About how that's just like the secret of contentment. It's there's just no way around it. It, it, it also is it, it, on the other side of it of never having enough. It, it's, it's one of the things that fuels these just crazy status and power differences. Uh, th- just that sort of lust for more and more. Like, how much do you need? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like with, with wine. Like, like, like I kind of got obsessed with wine and started drinking like these $200 wines. And the thing I sort of figured out is there's not that big a difference between like a good $20 <laughs> yeah. wine and a good $200 wine. And now it's like. Now my contest is to find as many wines under twenty dollars or as good as possible, and I, I honestly I can't tell the difference. And I had I drank a lot of really expensive wines to figure that out. I've never tried it. I've never tried like a a billion dollar wine before. No, no, I had like maybe a two hundred dollar wine. <laughs> yeah, you had two hundred. Not a lot of them. I don't have that much money. I may have done a two hundred bottle uh, glass. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, um, you know the these wine experts will will swear there's such subtle differences. You know the wine tasters have this special tongue. <laughs> yeah, the special tongue, yeah, yes. Yeah. 
Okay, 12. We're back to your uh, your greatest hits. If you were plagued by an asshole or a pack of them, <laughs> oy vey, a pack <laughs> of them, make a clean getaway if you can. If you can't develop a strategy, this one's just funny. I don't know why I'm laughing at this. If you can't develop a strategy for protecting yourself and fellow victims from the onslaught, for preserving your dignity and spirit and for fighting back, how can you get away, get away sometimes when they're so persuasive? Well, 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 I mean, so there's a lot to unpack here. In some ways, this is, I, I think that was a, a case of me trying to have an overly long summary of all the ideas in, in a book, which is uh, on, on um, the asshole survival guide. But essentially, um, there's a lot of situations where people wait too long. And, and this is like abusive relationships you were talking about, too. And they just keep taking it and taking it. And I mean, all the evidence is, is that once you leave, you're much better off. And, and, and this notion that people quit bosses, not organizations, is very well documented and is true. And, and then I do talk about uh, the notion that there are times when you can't get, uh, get away. And there are different things you can do to reduce the amount of stress you have. One is uh, you can distance yourself sort of just like the kryptonite. Second one is probably more cognitive behavioral therapy type stuff laughing at it, minimizing the threat, intellectualizing. And then I guess sort of last and but not least is that uh, there are times we can fight back. And, uh, and, and Gretchen Carlson versus Roger Ailes might be the perfect example. So you do two things. Uh, you document and you get allies. If you recall, your listeners will recall, uh, Gretchen Carlson was sexually harassed by Roger Ailes. She brought in her iPhone and recorded um, him hitting on her uh, repeatedly, for example, mm. and, and, and making bad comments. But, uh, but, but dealing with him, it's, you know, I wrote a book about it, but when I've, got, um, when I've got an asshole in my life, it's not like it's easy to figure out how to survive this. It's, it's like a, any other abusive relationship. It's not easy. Bob, I have a uh, maybe a little bit of a, a tangential question, but how do you know you're not the asshole? Not you, by the way, but not Bob Sutton. But I'm saying in general, because I I've noticed in my experience that most most people who I think they're assholes, they actually think that the other person's the asshole. Yeah, yeah. They don't think well, they're the asshole. Yeah. So that's I don't think it's a tangential a tangential question, and and the evidence actually supports it. If you look at some reasonable national surveys of of, of bu workplace bullying. And it's something like about 50% of Americans report that they have either observed or um, been victim of ongoing abuse. And something like a half a percent of Americans say they've been the person doing it. So those those numbers uh, those numbers don't um, don't add up. And, and, and as you would know, there's all sorts of self-serving attributions all sorts, yeah. where where, pe where people will do it. And I mean, and, and so I, I end the first chapter of the Asshole Survival Guide by sort of saying um, because. It's a small way to reduce the biases, to be slow, to label other people as assholes, and to be fast, to label yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and, but, and then I talk about various elements. Probably the best thing you can have in your life, this gets to psychological safety, is to have somebody in your life who will tell you the truth when you've been a jerk. I love that. <laughs> and and, and, I, and, and I, the example that I use uh, towards the end of the Asshole Survival Guide is uh, Clementine Churchill, um, who was Winston's wife. She, that, that was apparently, apparently he could be pretty nasty. And that was one of her jobs was to tell him when he's been, he'd been an asshole. And, and sort of in 1940 or so, when the Blitz was hitting London and he obviously was under a lot of stress, she wrote him a famous letter where she basically told him, you're being a jerk. They're afraid of you. 
and uh, you're not getting the best out of them, you've got to stop being so nasty, Winston. She put it more elegantly than that. But, oh, uh, but, 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 but the idea of having someone in your life, and, and by the way, if you go back to the Steve Jobs story, people who know him well, like Ed Catmull, who's in a group that we're part of, um, who has had a Pixar for 25 years, um, they will tell you that one of the reasons that Jobs actually became better the last decade of his life was that he had a guy named Bill Campbell, who's known as the coach in Silicon Valley, the late Bill Campbell, who would pull Steve aside and tell him when he'd blown it, who Steve, who Steve um, uh, respected. Well, this seems to relate to your, uh, your, co- your coach example with you know, the person who every now and then yells at you. You listen. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because you know they love you most of the time, <laughs> at least. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Bill Campbell wouldn't yell. He'd kind of tease you and swear at you and, <laughs> and tell you love you and give you a big hug. He was that kind of guy. He was an institution in uh, Silicon Valley. He coached almost all of the uh, major teams. And by the way, he didn't ask for money. I mean, he was CEO of Intuit and was independently wealthy. He was on the board. He just did it because he kind of loved doing it. That's cool. I'm trying to think of what Carl Rogers would say about this because he was all into like unconditional positive regard. Maybe, you know, you can still have positive regard for someone, but tell them that they've they've been an asshole. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I, I, I love you and I'll love you no matter what, but it would be better for you and those around you if you did blank. Isn't that love? Yeah. Uh, to love. me, that's love. Yeah, that is love. That's great. It's really great. Number 13. Am I a successor or a failure? I, I, is that a it? success or a failure yeah, is not. Success or a failure. Gotcha. I, I had successor w- without any space between success <laughs> and the word or. <laughs> so, anyway, am I a success or a failure? Is not a very useful question. It is better to ask, what am I learning? So this is this is actually from Carl Weick and and also the originally the folks who did the original the original Hawthorne studies, famous psychological studies. The, the reason it's not a very useful question, sort of following you know one of my heroes, Carl Weick, is is that um, is is that um, essentially um, that's sort of focusing on the end state, and most things in life are part success and part failure, and if you think you're oh I'm a loser I'm a loser that tends to demotivate you. If you think I'm a winner, you think that I'm really smart, and, and neither one of those are very conducive to learning. And the the the, the best que- the best question is what's what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And to keep asking yourself that as you go as you go through life, because focusing on whether I'm a loser or a winner is is it's not very useful emotionally. One no. leads to arrogance. The other one the other one leads to kind of depression. Yeah. And 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 focusing on on what I am learning is more useful. And 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 I'd actually add a, a footnote to that 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 in Silicon Valley, and, and we even do this with companies, is we'll celebrate failures. I actually don't like failure. I think that it sucks. I think that it, I get depressed when I get when I fail. I feel bad even when my enemies fail because mm. it hurts. Mm. But but nonetheless, it's, we all know that it's more useful to focus on what we're learning for ourselves and to others and to move forward. And this, this is another sort of Carl Weick thing. It's just really true. Yeah, it's it's also, it, it feels very Carol Dweckish. Oh, yes, it well. does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a growth mindset. 14, life is always going to be a bit messy, especially if you're doing something interesting and new. Try to create as much simplicity and clarity as you can, but embrace and enjoy inevitable confusion and messiness too. During COVID, how does this apply? Oh, wow, COVID's a an extreme example of this, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, I said this long before COVID and, and I guess COVID is an extreme case, but, but every situation I know 
when you sort of look back or even you're there, when people are doing great stuff like Google, uh, sort of growing like crazy, uh, the most successful sports teams, whatever. If you actually talk to people who were there who tell you the truth instead of the sanitized story, the growth of Pixar, for example, which is a wildly successful and humane company, um, it's almost every day, it almost always feels messy and difficult. And, and where I learned this was from my friend, David Kelly, who grew very successful company, IDEO, started the Stanford D School that I'm part of. When you go to David and you complain and say things are all screwed up, he essentially says, if you're doing something important and new, you're going to be confused much of the time and you kind of got to deal with it and move forward and do the best you can. But it's never going to be beautiful and linear and clean. And, and to me, that's what leadership and being part of some part of life is about and i guess to go to go to covid none of the solutions are going to be easy or clean there's going to be a lot of failure I, and, and i actually think that i'm seeing some intelligence around this that the number of organizations throughout the world are that are doing different uh, vaccine and treatment programs and assuming most are going to fail and that's just the mess that's necessary to get through this process and, and so you you can't be upset when, when there's there's setbacks. Now, I think where I get upset is when there's a lack of wisdom, to go back to some of the early ones, where people have strong opinions strongly held, or that they can't have constructive conflict. I think that's where we get in trouble. Yeah, that's a great uh, distinction. That's a great distinction. In general, that that whole point 14 feels very Zen Buddhist to me, <laughs> or Stoic. Or Stoic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it. I guess it is... I guess I guess that it is. So, so what's that book? Uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. I bet you know that book. The Art of the Motorcycle Madness. Or... Oh yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but the Zen and the Art of Archery. I forgot to wrote oh. the, the point. The point was you don't focus on the end; you just focus yes. on the process of how you string the bow. Yes. Um, how you put the arrow on? How you pick the arrow? How you draw back? You don't think about hitting the target. You sort of focus on That's the exactly on the right. on the on the process. And and and, and uh, was it? You know, archery is a pretty clean um, sort of operation compared to the mess of COVID, where everything's just all screwed up all the time, and and in lesser ways, just doing a startup where like there's always major problems. Indeed, uh, number fifteen. This is our last one, so this is our triumphant. Oh, I can't believe we made it. I've yeah, never, go, I've never done all fifteen ever. By the way, I usually do ten in my Yay! class. Well, this is this is the monumental podcast chat thing. <laughs> I really like fifteen because, uh, well, it has to do with racing sailboats, so I like it. Jimmy Maloney was right. Work is an overrated activity, and this kind of circles back to how we started. You know, this conversation. Yes. So, so the reason I have number fifteen, just philosophically, and I did mention this at the outset, is that is that I work in a set, setting, Stanford University, that is so work focused, so achievement focused, so capitalist focused that 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 I and I love my students, and and they're not all like this, but it's so much in the air that it's it's sort of a problem, and 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 we're and, and even. And, you know, and, and even uh, when people want to go into nonprofits and education, they, they view work as the solution to everything. So anyways, so I used to race sailboats, um, and, and this was kind of in the 90s, especially with my um, lifelong friend, Jimmy Maloney. And we we raced this two-person boat, and we had called a 505. And, and every weekend, and he had a kind of crummy job, essentially doing nasty finance and real estate. And every weekend, he'd say, work sucks, work's overrated, work sucks, work's overrated. And of course, people say stuff like that all the time. But then one day, 
Jimmy and his wife, Loretta, they sell their house. They sold their house for about a million dollars, which is it's a fair amount of money, but not that much money. They bought a sailboat. They pulled their three kids out of school who were probably seven, nine, and 12 then, something like that. And they just cruised the Pacific Ocean for about two and a half years. And then they ended up in New Zealand, which seems even smarter than it did at the time. <laughs> and they, they, so they quit their jobs and they, they do a little work. Like Loretta, who is a school teacher, would do uh, a little substitute teaching. Jimmy would work one or two days in a sailboat, but they mostly just focus on raising their kids and sailing. And the upshot, which actually, even since I wrote that, has changed in different ways, was so they raised their three kids. The oldest one, Jimmy, is, becomes a professional sailor. The other two become two of the best sailors in New Zealand. And New Zealand has the best sailors in the world. And, and to give you evidence, there are, there are 12 members, last time I looked, of the New Zealand Olympic team for whatever the next Olympics is. One is, one is um, his, 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 his daughter, Alex, who already has won a silver medal. And the other one is his son, Andy, in the single-handed boat, who's already won the America's Cup as a crew member. So those are the kids wow. that he raised. But, but on the other hand, in, in some ways, it bothers me a little bit. There's so much achievement that's come out of this, so maybe a little bit too much achievement. But, but it used to just be that they just blew it off. And the last couple of times I've talked to Jimmy and Loretta, they really are much happier than most people I know. I love that. I, I love kind of ending on that. Um not the peak, but the plateau. Maslow, Maslow, yeah. Maslow talked about the plateau experience, which is, you know, finding the miraculous in the everyday, you know, as opposed yeah. to everything having to be this big peak, you know, like I reach the top of the mountain all the time. Yeah. So, so in the miraculous in the other day, just something about Jimmy, since I sailed with him in a long time. Yeah. He loved, I guess you would call it a flow experience too. Totally. One of the problems we had competitively was and he's obviously a good sailor. He won championships and he raised all these champions is when the boat felt really great. And we're going straight, even was the wrong direction in a race. He'd just get into the groove so much. He just, that was his favorite part of sailing, which was pretty good when he got in the ocean in that boat, just going for days in one direction. And it felt really great. So, so, so that's just kind of how Jimmy always thought, thought I just want to be in that. I, what, what would you call that? It just feels so good. And so simple. I think flow, I think flow is inadequate. Uh, phrase for that, or even yeah, Maslow's notion of uh, of uh, well, it could be a peak experience as well. Yeah, that's beautiful, Bob. Thank you so much for chatting with me today about something that's not entirely about assholes. You know, oh, a, no, no. a broader framework, a broader framework for for your uh, your life and 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 offering us our wisdom. Well, thank you, Scott. It's a delight to talk to you. It's a delight to talk to a fellow psychologist. And this is the first interview I've ever given. Yeah. And I do a lot of interviews actually where somebody asked me about uh, about this set of uh, things I believe. So it was really fun. And that was and I, you didn't really get canned answers from me because I actually had to think about the stuff you asked. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in on the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. If you can, please add a rating and review on iTunes. I read all of the reviews and really appreciate your feedback. Also, for additional exclusive must-listen-to episodes, check out our new Patreon page at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.